As we get started this morning, you just go ahead and turn to the book of Micah. Really appreciate um, you guys leading today. It's nice. The banjo. I enjoy the banjo. Where is uh, Micah? Micah still? Yeah, there he is. How can I miss you? Uh, no, it's a, it's interesting. Um, these guys like they can place different instruments. I, I I don't I don't even understand how you could go from one to the other. You know, it blows my mind. But anyway, it's just a blessing for um, Curtis and Madison to be with us today, and they're going to be with us for several weeks through uh, almost to the end of August. And so we are really thankful that God has brought them back, and they're going to be going to uh, England. Uh, she Madison's going to be pursuing her PhD, and so there and so uh, while they're here we really enjoy them being a part of our music and our team so if we as we get started uh, if you would just bow with me and we'll begin our study this morning father we are grateful that you um, allow us to come together weekly that we get the privilege of doing so lord we know that there are people in places that have to hide when they gather with one another for worship. There are whole movements of the church around the world that could never have a public gathering. They could never sing songs of praise to You without fear of being uh, beaten, potentially killed. And we are able to come together, Lord, and we are grateful for that. Pray we would never lose sight of the wonder of being in a place where we can gather for singing, preaching, praying, reading of Scripture, taking the Lord's Supper, all those wonderful means of grace to us. And Lord, I, I thank You for that. In Christ's name, Amen. So as we start the book of Micah today, um, we, we've been moving through, if you're new today, we've been doing basically one sermon per minor prophet. And so... Uh, if you're new, you just know that we're going to do a big, large book in one setting. Not that big, I guess, seven chapters. But we are going to do that in a way that today just maybe a little different than we have been doing. But we'll just kind of try to get the main thrust of the book, and then we'll go to another book next week. And so just kind of know that as we're moving ahead. Now, just real quick, as you're looking at Micah chapter 1, verse 1, we learn that he's from a town called Morsheth, about 25 miles from Jerusalem. And he is uh, basically then from the southern kingdom. And Micah is just kind of like this southern... Some people, I don't know if this would be really right, but I always think of like these guys as like, he's kind of this southern country boy. He, doesn't live in, he lives in a smaller town, away from kind of where things happen. And uh, he kind of comes into town, loves the poor, and makes self-righteous people really nervous. That's kind of what, you know, you kind of get this picture. He's, he's going to make people uncomfortable, and he's going to bring out some things that really need to be said. Now, he lives during the reign of three kings. You'll notice that here. And uh, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Uh, he's also like a contemporary of Isaiah, Amos, and Hosea. So we've looked, uh, not at Isaiah, but the, those other two minor prophets there. And um, we understand that he's around the time of Isaiah, but Isaiah would have been uh, someone in the city, and so he would have probably been known among people. Uh, we might think that Micah was a little less known in like the, the happening city of Jerusalem. But um, also, just to kind of think about this, Jotham, well, I mean, well, let's stop there. We'll say, the, the, Jotham was a pretty good king. Ahaz was like a, a horrible king. And then if you were to look at this, and you'll see this other king, uh, we see Hezekiah, and he was a good king. 
So you kind of have him living, he's in a time where there's different kings reigning, and he's yet a prophet speaking during that time. He also is in a time where he uh, watches the northern kingdom be taken over by the Assyrians. So he's again all in the 8th century, uh, and he's, he's, he sees a lot of things take place during the time of his ministry. Now, we might ask the question from Micah, this big question, what does God want? And that, that's an important question. What does God want? I remember um, when I first started in ministry, I, I was at a FBC Wake Village, not far from here, and the work, praise and worship movement was really big. And it was kind of, you went from people maybe like using their hymnals to using screens, and uh, the music was like uh, more of, instead of like organs and pianos, they started using other instruments in worship. Well, it started like this, not, I mean, well, Wake Village didn't have as big a problem, but it started this major deal in all these churches. And, and kind of one of the answers was, in these big churches, we say we have a traditional service and a contemporary service. And so the, the, there's all this discussion about what does God want? Not really that question, but what do we want? It's not, it was not saying, we wonder what God wants in this kind of thing. It really is, what do we want? What do I want? What do I like? And so a certain group of people, I like this. And a certain group, I like that. And again, the question wasn't, what does God want? And you know, if we were to study that out, we would say certainly that God is, is um, using different groups of people in different times to do different things. We would say, for instance, in our study of systematic theology, that God certainly raises up, and even in church history, different people for their time to speak to different subjects. So we would say that's a good thing. We would probably even argue that God seems to use people at different generations to write different music for the church to bless it. And so we kind of have to ask some questions about that. But really, if we were to stop and say, what does God want? He doesn't, it's not just the form. What He wants is, is His people to honor Him and to worship Him and to be edified and to be useful in His kingdom and in His world. And so how that is accomplished often looks different, certainly in different contexts. But I think it's important that we say, our first question is not what I want. It's what does God want? What does God desire? So then we would, if we were taking the issue of worship, we would say, He would probably desire something that reflects who He is. Right? That speaks of the glories of who He is. That's why in our songs, like you read a lot of those songs, you can think about God. You could take it home and say, kids, this week, devotionally, we're going to read the, the songs from the church service and the words that are written, and I'm going to teach you about God. That would be something we would say, that's God-friendly. Right? And so the question is, what does God want? And with, with the Micah st- struggle, as we're kind of moving through and trying to understand what is taking place here, we would say, God is the ruler of the universe. He is the creator of the universe. He has, uh, he has thoughts. And He's not silent. So God actually speaks to His people and actually tells them what He wants. Is that not crazy? We're not sitting around trying to come up with ways to, to, to appease God or to appeal to God. 
It's one of those things that's interesting. Like if you had somebody come over for dinner and they're really picky, like Madison. Where's Madison? Oh, yeah. But I mean, they're really picky and it's like, uh, I'm joking. She has some food allergies. I'm just messing with her. But, but she has some things. And so you say, um, what do we feed Madison tonight? And so let's say Anna came out and handed her this. She said, mm-mm. Hand her another, no. Hand her another, nope, 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 nope. What, what would we do? It would be a nightmare every time I had him over for dinner, right? In the same way, if God was that way, we would say, mmm, I think God wants this. He wants this. He want, and I keep handing him stuff. And he's like, nope, 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 nope. But he's not like that. God tells us. He speaks to us. He shares with us. Now let's look at this. And I want you to see it. Micah chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. So turn there. Micah chapter 6, verse 6 through 8. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself down before God on high? Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sins of my soul? He has told you, old man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? He is not silent. He has spoken and we can understand what He has to say. It is a beautiful thing. So today we're going to be looking at that. I just want you to think again, just kind of thinking through this book. If you, if you look at a couple of verses, if you want to write them down or mark them, chapter 1, verse 2, chapter 3, verse 1. In chapter 6, verse 1, the phrase or the word hear is mentioned. And it's like a series of hear this. And the series kind of goes like God is going to judge his rebellious people, and yet he's going to give them hope. And that's something we see over and over throughout the study. So, but again, today we're looking at that, we're trying to understand it. So, what I'm going to do is a little bit different than normal. We're going to look at just a passage primarily. In Micah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, so you can go back there. We're going to look primarily there, understanding that there's a lot in, in Micah. He's going to follow this transition of moving through and saying, I'm going, to, I'm going to judge you for your sins. You've abandoned what I've said I want. What, what is befitting of one who is created and redeemed? The natural response should be, What do you want? But it wasn't. And so you understand that that's moving through there. But we're going to look at this because chapter 6, verses 1 through 8 is kind of like a lawsuit. And I thought it would be helpful to do it. So um, if you were to say, for instance, um, we made a covenant with one another, covenant's like a solemn binding agreement. And so you and I said, we make a covenant with God. God is here. God says, uh, I've rescued you, I've saved you. Now I'm going to teach you about how to live and walk with me. So you make a covenant. God says, this is what I'm going to do. And you say, this is what we're going to do. And if you break the covenant, then you have to face God and He's going to sue you. Okay? Y'all go with that? So it's a covenant lawsuit in this moment. That's what we're looking at this morning. You can think of it that way. Now, um, one guy named J.K. West said it this way. In, in, in verse 1, we have the summons. So there's coming together. They're, they're call, God is calling His people to Himself for this, this, this time of, of gathering before really this judgment place. And they're going to meet together. 
As you move forward, you see there's a charge to the witnesses in verse 2. So there's going to be witnesses. It's going to be the mountains. Mountains are going to be hanging out there as witnesses of what is about to take place. And as you move forward in verses 3-5, through it's the plaintiff's case. So God is going to lay out His case before His people. As you move forward, and you just kind of put this in your mind as we're looking at it, we have the defendant's response in verses 6 and 7. And then verse 8, we will have the indictment or judgment and the required amendment to make things right. So that's kind of like the big structure of that, and we'll look at that, and then we'll talk about how we put it all together. So verse 1, hear what the Lord says, arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. The Lord of covenant here, the Lord who's over these people, has called them together and says, okay, get ready, get prepared. Again, the mountains are there. It's kind of like the mountains, the land has been there all along. Before the people got to move in the land, the, the, the mountains were there. So they've been there observing what's been going on. They stand there as these timeless towers above the people. And it says, do you remember what's taking place? And, and, and stand here and listen to what is presented before you. Now, verse 2, Hear you mountains, the indictment of the Lord. You see that as you move forward. And it's going to be an indictment before the people as you move to verses 3-5. through five. Oh my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. Now he's going to bring this up and he's going to say, okay, God's going to say, come everybody, come together. Mountains, witnesses, people standing here, God begins to speak and He says, let's lay this out. And as He does, He says, first, you were slaves in Egypt. Do you remember your past? Remember how you were spent, you spent 400 years in Egypt under a tyrant in slavery, beaten down, worked to death. It was a horrendous situation. Remember that? And what He does is He says, But remember how I rescued you. I brought you up. I redeemed you. I came down to you and I said, I'm going to redeem my people. They cried out. God said, I'm going to rescue. And He attacked Egypt with such fierce force that they were pummeled like down to the ground. It like destroyed them. They were decimated. And they really end up giving money and saying, just leave, just leave. And the most powerful man in the world is caused to, to come to his knees and God says, now let my people go. So God rescues His people. So the first thing He says is this, do you remember what I've done for you? Do you remember the salvation that, that I gave to you? It's a beautiful picture. Now here's the thing. One guy says, the supreme demonstration of the great king's grace, love, and power and care for his people is found in the Exodus event. Therefore, they should respond with grateful love, faith, faithfulness, and obedience to the Lord. That is a natural response. The second thing we see, he says he gives them leaders. They were competent leaders. I mean, when, to the most, for the most part. There's certainly going to be areas where you say Moses and Aaron and uh, their sister, 
uh, Miriam, that there's going to be times where you say, hey, they falter some level in their leadership. But we see Moses at times saying, like, the people are sticking up, bringing up stones, and they're going to stone him to death. And he's getting on his knees saying, God, just protect these people. Take care of these people. Um, do good for these people. God, just let me take their place. Lord, you can't do this. Over and over and over you see this, these very wonderful leaders. And he says, look what happened there. Not only in this time, at some level here, they're going to have a king that's going to be a great king. And Mike is someone who would speak the words of the Lord. Third thing you notice, just looking in this text, that God takes care of them even when their enemies try to curse them. There was a time where this king says, he goes to this like false prophet and he says, listen, would you go like throw a curse on these people? I mean, just I mean, just throw down a really bad curse. And God like stops that guy from doing that, and he speaks something forward, and it's a blessing. Like God takes this guy that's been paid to curse them, and he and this guy gets up there to say something, he speaks, and it's a blessing. He speaks blessing over the people. And so God's saying, Look, man, I rescued you, you as a nation out of this place. I gave you leaders who would lead you in the way. I protected you from curses. I mean, do you understand what I've done for you? Fourth, remember, um, and this is something that they were coming out of the Mo, like Moab into Canaan. And basically, when they had to come over, they crossed, you hear these songs, crossing the River Jordan. That last time they camped out on this one spot is what he mentions here, and then they come over into this other spot. And the story is about how God miraculously brought them into the promised land. And, and, and so it's a picture. It's like He miraculously took them out of slavery. He miraculously brought them into a wonderful land. A land of blessing. And so God speaks to them and shares that with them. Now here's the thing. In view of everything I've done. You know, sometimes when I'm... I, in, I don't know if it's something like... It, I mean, I hate to say it that way. But sometimes in this area, for instance, you could grow up in church and it's so like... It's so much a part of you that it never shakes you. Like you... The last time you've wept over your sin or wept over the Savior, you don't even know. Is that weird? You might not even remember a time that you were absolutely overwhelmed. Maybe the only time that you say, well, I get overwhelmed when the music's just right. <laughs> and it's like, or, or the preaching fires me up, but just to sit in wonder over what God has done for His people, it's almost like sometimes you think, does somebody have to beg you? Beg you to be fired up about God? Beg you to be overwhelmed by His goodness? Beg you to say, sit before Him and saturate your mind with the glories of Christ? This, this thing here is like God saying, think about what I've done. Think about what I've done. Think about what I've done. It's such a beautiful thing to see. Now, how are the people going to respond? How will they respond to this demonstration of the grace and mercy of God? Let's see what they say. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself down before God on high? Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with a thousand, uh, with thousands of rams, with 
ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? It is almost as if they understand that they've been they've wrongly responded to God. So now the question is, well, what are we going to do? Should we just do the external stuff? Maybe I'll start coming to church more. Maybe I'll serve more. Maybe I'll give more. Like maybe I should just, man, I should just really, well, I'll tell you what we need to do. We've got to make this thing, this worship thing, a big deal. We, it needs to be more beautiful, more extravagant, more great. Let's just, let's just, man, we got to make this big. I mean, God, He wants smoke and lights and cameras. He wants it big, man. He wants to see that we are just like, everybody, we'll just put signs up here and say, start crying now. Laugh. Do this, do that. Let's put this big show so that everybody's just like exploding with this picture of, oh, look how wonderful this is. And then God will say, boom, that's what I'm talking about. It, it's important that you understand, like when he, he's, he's saying that, that, he's saying, like, listen, you can bring all this stuff externally, you can bring it like in a ma magnificent way. Doesn't mean that God is going to be more pleased with you. And this is not knocking worship altogether. It's so important to see it. He's not knocking that altogether. He's just saying, like, that alone is not the answer to the issue at hand. So it'd be like them saying, well, I'll tell you what we'll do. Now, this was very common in that time, and I just can't even imagine this. Actually, one of the kings of the people of Israel did this. They took their child, their firstborn child, and killed them. That's what the God, they, some sacrifice to this God of Molech, that's what they would do. They'd kill their firstborn child. They would sacrifice their child to, maybe that would be enough. It, that's that, that's something that I think it's very important to see. They're saying, look, we'll just pull out all the stops. Let's just kind of embrace this worldly worship thought and we'll just sacrifice our children. Is that what God wanted? Actually, that would be like doubling their sin. It was condemned for them to do any such practice of this kind of worldly worship. You know what's interesting? The costliness of this is not just them ponying up money or just you know doing all these things. It's it, the costliness of it is almost sometimes it's almost like this. Somebody could say, "Well, I'll I'll do all of these things, but the one thing God wants me to do, which is embodies my whole life, I'll do all this other stuff because it would be easier for me to do something really big a couple of times a year." than Him to offer my whole life. So what does God want? What the Lord wanted most of all was not the offerings, but the heart, allegiance, and obedience of the offers. They would offer everything excepting only what He asked for, their heart, its love, and its obedience. And that's shocking. Verse 8, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly 
with your God. It's like a summary of the law. He's already said this in Deuteronomy 10. He said, And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I'm giving you today for your own good. This was interesting. He saved them for their own good. He explained to them the way to live life for their own good. He is not asking of them something that would would destroy them by giving their firstborn, but something that would bring blessing to them. That would lavish them with the blessings of God's presence and His His power and His working among them. That would satisfy their heart with something beyond this present age. Something eternal. Something that they they always long for. Something they're longing for even then. And He's saying, I want to satisfy you with every good and perfect thing. That's what He's saying to them. He's told you what is good and what He requires that will be good for your soul. That will be good for your person. That will be good for your family. That will be good for your life. They're to act justly. It's not just wanting to... It's not just wanting to... like For justice to, to, to come... Uh, it's it's not just wanting for other people to act justly. It's to, to act justly yourself. To act justly would be to treat others fairly. A great theologian, Stephen McBride. Y'all know Stephen? He did an overview of this, and honestly I told Anna, I was like, man, if I could just preach that. It was very, I mean, just the way he writes it, I just thought, I just can't talk like that. But anyway... Stephen, in his notes, says uh, there's kind of two types of justice addressed in Micah. You have economic justice and legal justice. He would say economic justice is a spirit of fairness, sharing, and cooperation with material things. Economic justice is attained when you use your material possessions to bless others around you. But here's what they do. In Micah chapter 2, Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and they seize them. See, they're stealing instead of blessing. They're stealing instead of giving. They, they seize, house, uh, seize them and houses and take them away. They oppress a man in his house and a man in his inheritance. Chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, But lately My people have risen up as an enemy. You strip the rich, uh, the, the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly with no thought of war. The women of My people you drive out of their delightful houses from their young children. You take away My splendor forever. So in one way, it's like this economic justice where you would be one of sharing instead of taking. Sharing instead of stealing. It doesn't just go to say, well, I don't steal. It goes beyond to be a blessing to others with what God's provided you. The other thing is legal justice. It occurs when a people are bound by the rule of the law. That is, the law does not respect people based on their position or their power. All people are equal before the law. And if you study in Micah chapter 3, verses 1 through 3 and 7, 2 through 4, you see this taking place. I just read a couple of things to you real quick. It says in Micah 7, 
The godly has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among mankind. They all lie and wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. Their hands are on what is evil to do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe, and the great man utters the evil desire of his soul, and thus they weave it together. So so shocking what's taking place there. Both of these just injustices staring you in the face. And this is going on among the people of God. You know, I looked up Lady Justice this week, and uh, she is blindfolded with a sword in one hand and a balance of scales in the other. It's kind of the picture there of justice, of doing, you know, treating people fairly at all levels, both economic and when we would say in legal, all of those terms that, that justice would reign, people would be treated fairly and rightly. It's interesting though, I think when we think about justice and treating people fairly, it's not just saying, I obey the laws of this land. It's obeying the laws of a heavenly land. It's obeying not just the law of like, okay, in standing in court, they would consider me just. It is saying, in the heavenly courtroom, when I stood before God, would I be considered a just person? Would I be considered one who walks faithfully and honorably towards others? Would I be considered one who does good to others? Regardless of who they are. Second, they must love mercy. The word here implies a faithful covenant love. This love is committed. It's costly love. Tied to justice here, you could put it together, but in Deuteronomy 24, there was a time when they would say, listen, when you're harvesting your field, leave some in the corners. Leave it for the widow. Leave it for the orphan. Leave it for the one who is traveling through the land, the stranger. Be one who says, I want to make sure with a merciful heart that people are taken care of. I'm not just trying to I'm not just trying to, to, to live to, to store up for myself, but rather I want to make sure that those around us, the one traveling through over here, the one that is struggling here, that we have a heart towards others that says, I want, I want to be a blessing to them. I want to love them with a love that's not just verbal. 1 Corinthians speaks of love that is patient and kind. It does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing. It rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. He's saying like justice and mercy should come forth from you. Love those things. Third, he says, walk humbly with your God. One translation says, it's kind of like thinking about walking humbly before your God. It says, and you must be very careful to live the way your God wants you to. Humility, somebody that's humble before God, if you were to like think about what they would be like, they would constantly be seeking to know what God has said. They would cherish that. But not so they could beat up other people but so that they could, could understand where, where they've fallen short and then stand before Him and say, Lord, how might I walk in faithfulness to You? Part of what like Abraham was told, Abraham, walk before Me and be blameless. 
Stare in my face. Get before my word. Listen to what I've said to you. And then, and then walk in that way. It's a sign of humility for someone to seek to do these things. So, what do we do with worship? Like, you got to go back to that idea of like, what do we do with that? What, what do we say about that in this context? We say, mm, I guess God doesn't care about those things. I think David understood the balance, and David says in Psalm 51, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. This is after he had sinned greatly. You will not be pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. There's kind of this picture here of what God wants from us is certainly to, as His people to gather in worship and praise to Him with hearts that are filled with a desire for justice and mercy to reign with lives that are lived by doing good to others and giving to others and serving others and loving others, filled with sacrificially doing so, and then coming together in praise to our God. I think we have to see that and put those two together. So as we think about that, I think it's very important to see it. And that is what's going on, I think, in the heart of Micah. And then the question kind of comes is, how's this going to work out then? The reality is that God must judge sin. And He's called them repent. They're not going to repent. They're going to continue in their rebellion and they will be judged by God. So what's the, what's the hope here? Because we might say, man, I, you know, I struggle with these things. Of course you do. I want you to turn to Micah chapter 4. Verses 1-3. through It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the mountains, as the highest of mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and people shall flow to it, and many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide for the strong nations far uh, for strong nations far away and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks nation shall not lift up sword against nation neither shall they learn war anymore Look at chapter 5 verse 2 But you O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, who is coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. You see, in this context, he's saying there's a lack of justice and there is a lack of mercy and there is a lack of walking humbly before the Lord. But in the context in chapter 4, he's going to say there's coming a day where there will be justice. There will be mercy. There will be humility before God. There will be a people coming from all over. All these nations coming together and they're all seeking the Word of the Lord. 
They're longing for that. They want to hear from Him. And they want to walk in a way that would be, be a blessing to others. They will no longer fight. There will no longer be war. There will no longer be a need for that. They will not, no one will have to defend themselves, nor will there people be wanting to, to take somebody out. It's a day where justice and mercy reign. Where God reigns. Where humility towards God reigns. This day will come. And so God is saying there's coming a day where this broken situation will be restored and My reign will be all over this world. He's talking about the new heavens and the new earth. But how is this going to take place? In Micah 5.2, it speaks of one coming from Bethlehem. The New Testament tells us this is Jesus and He will bring about the coming of the new age. He's already brought it. And not only is He going to bring it, He's already brought it, but it's coming in yet the future. We live between this time of the kingdom where it's already here. Christ has come, but it's not yet fully a reality. And so as we wait in eager anticipation for the One who came from Bethlehem to return, what should we do? I think with all of our heart, we should look at the future of what God has for His people. And as again, Stephen says, it should inspire our moral imagination to want to see as much as we can the glory of God's purposes coming forward on this earth. We pray, Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We know that it will come in its fullness in the future, but in the present we are striving to embody that today. So do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly before your God. And if you have not come to Christ, as we read in our assurance of pardon, God will in Christ save those who come in repentance and faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank You. That You have not left us in the dark. That we do not have to come up with wild schemes to try to make You happy with us. As Your people, Lord, we know that Christ came to restore Your kingdom, to restore Your people, to save those who have walked in in disobedience, in in, in injustice, and who have not loved mercy, to rescue them. So that we as Your people, as rescued people, that we might embody those things in this world. God, we long for the day when Christ will come, when all things will be made new. And as we wait, please make us a people that demonstrate to the world the wonders of Your salvation. In Christ's name, Amen.